It's time for a conversation about a book that matters. This is The Book Nook. The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. Chapter 1, Hal and Me. Dave, stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop? So the supercomputer Hal pleads with the implacable astronaut Dave Bowman in a famous and weirdly poignant scene toward the end of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Bowman, having nearly been sent to a deep space death by the malfunctioning machine, is calmly, coldly disconnecting the memory circuits that control its artificial brain. Dave, my mind is going, Hal says, forlornly. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it too. Over the last few years, I've had, an, uh, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I feel it most strongly when I'm reading. I used to find it easy to immerse myself in a book or a lengthy article. My mind would get caught up in the twists of the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after a page or two. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel like I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. I think I know what's going on. For well over a decade now, I've been spending a lot of time online, searching and surfing and sometimes adding to the great databases of the internet. The web's been a godsend to me as a writer. Research that once required days in the stacks or periodical rooms of libraries can now be done in minutes. A few Google searches, some quick clicks on hyperlinks, and I've got the telltale fact or the pithy quote I was after. I couldn't begin to tally the the hours or the gallons of gasoline the net has saved me. I do most of my banking and a lot of my shopping online. I use my browser to pay my bills, schedule my appointments, book flights and hotel rooms, renew my driver's license, and send invitations and greeting cards. Even when I'm not working, I'm as likely as not to be foraging in the web's data thickets, reading and writing emails, scanning headlines and blog posts, following Facebook updates, watching video streams, downloading music, or just tripping lightly from link to link to link. The net has become my all-purpose medium, the conduit for most of the information that flows through my eyes and ears and into my mind. The advantages of having immediate access to such an incredibly rich and easily searched store of data are many, and they've been widely described and duly applauded. Google, says Heather Pringle, a writer with Archaeology magazine, is an astonishing boon to humanity, gathering up and concentrating information and ideas that were once scattered so broadly around the world that hardly anyone could profit from them. Observes Wired's Clive Thompson, the perfect recall of silicon memory can be an enormous boon to thinking. The boons are real, but they come at a price. As McLuhan suggested, media aren't just channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought but they also shape the process of thought. And what the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. And so begins Nicholas Carr's The Shallows. So guys, um, this book for us in our Book Nook series, and it's kind of paired together with our Man vs. Machine uh, sidebar series, is 
is the third in sort of a set of books that we've looked at. The first being Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which came out in uh, 1984. And then we had Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which came out in 1384. Um, Not really. It was a long time ago. It was was the 19th century, right? Um, And then lastly, we have Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, which came out in 2011 and then was recently updated. What was it? 2016? 2017 yeah, is, is the know. most recent it, edition. It's late, late 20 teens, I think. So the the edition that I have and that I had reread for our book nook episode was the 2011 edition, and so that is already 12 years old where we sit today, um, which says something. But here's what I'd like for us to start with: give us a little summary and try to help us tie some threads. Where does this book sort of carry that conversation forward when it comes to? Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to today. Mm, yeah. The Shallows. Well, this book is about um, kind of the the history of the way uh, we consume information. I mean, he goes all the way back to the introduction of the written word and then the printing press. And it's kind of a look at sort of how we ingest information and then what are the changes and the essential changes that have taken place with the advent of the internet and all the technologies to kind of consume information in that form. And, and in particular, he spends a lot of time talking about the effect on our cognition or the way we, our brains function uh, in all of these contexts. And then more, he spends most of his time focusing on what's the effect of internet engagement and the information model that that presents and how that affects our ability to have or not sustained focus, uh, reasoning, um, uh, attention, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, there was a, a line in, Mar- in uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death that I thought was really kind of prescient for today's moment. He said Marshall McLuhan had believed that the television actually altered the shape of our brains, the way that our brains work. And he didn't have the scientific study or the, even the ability to, to witness that transformation when Marshall McLuhan was writing, but he believed that that was happening. Neil Postman said he tended to agree, but again, 1984, they, weren't, they didn't have the ability to study these things as up close and personal as we do today. What Nicholas Carr does is he actually shows, and, and he updates these studies later in this most recent edition, but that science has actually revealed it's exactly the case. The technologies we use do possess the power to transform the actual gray matter in our skulls. Our experiences shape our brains um, in that in that sense. Yeah, in, in some ways, The Shallows is the most complete history of our relationship to media and to information gathering. He calls them intellectual technologies. He even brings up the clock and the map as two other sort of signposts on this journey of how we went from, you know, ancient, more ancient peoples to sort of the modern and maybe postmodern mind. It's also the most personal account of what's happening with the internet because um, amusing ourselves to death was very social. It was about what's happening to our society. Frankenstein in a lot of ways was about what happens to our families when, when our technology gets out of hand. This is about what happens within the walls of our own skulls, what happens within uh, the confines of our own mind. Um, and in that ways, 
it's an escalation and uh, also a much deeper investigation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the thing that stood out the most of just a general statement about the book was that what seems to be a, a massive benefit to humanity um, can be a massive detriment. You just don't know it. And uh, I read the book online, so it's hard to recall a lot of what I read. So <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, good. Just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually watched the movie, The Shallows. Yeah. I did not find a single shark. I know. What's up with that? Waste of time. Terrible. Um, yeah, I, 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 there are some movies that you know butcher books. Uh, that movie really <laughs> had nothing like the book at all. I, I didn't I know if the shark was a metaphor. Yeah. or what was going yeah, on? What's happening here? Okay, so one of the key uh, concepts that. Nicholas Carr brings out in this book is this is this idea of neuroplasticity. And so because we're all accomplished neuroscientists, I feel like we we're we're qualified probably to talk about that on our podcast. Um, so why don't we just take a second and describe as best we can, maybe in the, the most layman terms possible, which is really all that's available to us, um, what is neuroplasticity and why does it matter? Why is that a central facet of Nicholas Carr's thesis here? Well, it's the ability, I think, for the the actual matter in your brain to form and reform and lay and, and create new pathways of connections um, in the synapses that exist within your brain. And it actually alters the physical shape of your brain, even. And that's why... You know, this ability to both alter and modify and change, uh, that's kind of where the plasticity notion comes into play. But uh, I think it's interesting that the things we experience, and not just experience, but the things we devote our minds to in our imagination and our contemplation, right. alters the shape and physical structure and and. To, the, to a larger point, the way our brains actually function. This is interesting to me because I think, um, you know, this is very consistent in an unexpected way, I think, with much of the teaching that you find about human uh, character in Scripture. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Jesus talked a lot about it's what's inside that determines who you are. You know, it's what... It's not what you know. Um, you're you're an yeah. adulterer if you think you're about adultery, you know, right. hmm. um, or if you want. Adultery. It's what proceeds from the heart. That yeah, yeah, right. and and then transforming your mind. All of Paul's comments about transforming your mind, and um, I think there's some theologians who've even described uh, what's going on in our lives as, particularly people of faith, is that we're ripening towards something. Hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and so we're we're changing in every possible way over time into an altered version of what we started out to be. And this is why, honestly, it's so important to be careful about what we consume and how we control our imagination. Yeah, neuroplasticity can be compared to the way all the other muscles in our bodies work. As we use that muscle, that muscle becomes stronger. The connections become uh, more dense and more rich. And as we... Uh, stop using them as we allow them to atrophy, they sort of waste away. Really, it means that what we think about changes how we think. And so the things you apply your mind to, your brain adapts to do that process, to think those thoughts more efficiently. Um, 
and also crave those thoughts more that it actually not only does it make your brain better at thinking that way it also changes the kind of thinking your brain wants to be thinking (laughs) well and what's interesting about this is that this came as a real surprise in fact the whole idea of neuroplasticity um, and he goes through some of the history of that in the book was counter um, cultural to the scientific consensus it was actually sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for everything controversial yeah yeah. Well, they just viewed everything as just fixed. You can, it That's won't right. change. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So the human being was viewed as mm-hmm. sort of a predetermined end. All our thoughts, all our emotions, all our acts were sort of determined by a static brain. Mm-hmm. We had this. We had this idea of the mechanics of our brain, the gray matter of our brain, firing and producing the illusion of a mind. And so right. the mind wasn't actually real. That was sort of the scientific consensus. Yeah. But now we've we've gone further and further into this whole study of our brains and our minds and neuroplasticity. We've discovered that our minds, that immaterial mind, what we think actually has the power to shape and reshape our brains. And so we can think things that our brains don't want to think, and that conscious, deliberate, prolonged thought can reshape our brains. It is a... It's a huge, it's a huge shift in scientific consensus, and it's and it happens extremely fast. Some of the stuff in the book, like they talked about, um, they had people who had never used the internet before, or were very novice at using the internet, and they scanned their brains to see as they clicked around on the page, you know, sort of <laughs> fumbled their way through what was happening in their brains, and all the connections were very weak, very dim on the scans they were doing, and then they sent them home and said, just. Browse the internet for an hour a day and come back next week. And when they came back a week later, only using an hour a day, they had massively different connections in their brains. Their brain's ability to adapt and to connect to just using the web over a week was a massive change in the structure of their mind. Right. And that was crazy. Or they did the experiment with the monkeys with pliers yeah where they they gave monkeys pliers to do their daily tasks with and they discovered that the monkeys brains began to interpret the pliers as their hands yeah uh, their brain said oh this these are my as fingers an extension now. of their own right. body yeah and so right. it, it became we began to understand not only does it change our minds it changes our relationship to the world around us we begin to view the world around us differently in the very way that our brain circuits are firing. Right. So so there's pros and cons to neuroplasticity, right? The pros are um, you, we can change the way we think. We can literally, what Paul says, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds yep. is, is a biological and spiritual, not just possibility, but probability. If you devote yourself consciously to the right things, it has a transformative impact on your mind. But there's also the con, there's the negative of neuroplasticity, which is when we develop even harmful synapses or neural pathways, uh, we want to keep going back to those. Our brains do want to keep favoring the pathways that we've created. So there's a thing called dopamine, right? And there are certain acts that are highly dopaminergic, okay? So there, so that dopamine is sort of like a super synapser in our brain. Yeah. So if, in other yeah. words, dopamine has the power to create neural circuits and pathways way better, deeper, stronger, and more lasting than other things. So if we're doing anything often enough that's producing dopamine, guess what? It's going to be, we are way less likely to stop doing that thing. 
yeah. than we were before. And the internet, social media, many of the little push button texts that we have in our pockets are dopaminergic. Yeah. And many of those choices that we're making with our brain, allowing those dopamine highways, those pathways to be created are at the expense of other pathways. Right. So our brain is going to have to make choices about where its energies are going and where its mental pathways are going. And so by choosing certain pathways, we're actually choosing to not use others, which allows them to shrivel. So not only do we not want to use those old ways of learning, thinking, whatever you want to call it, we also are are worse at it. We actually are losing the ability to do that. As, yeah. as the old guy in the room, I'll just make the observation that at some point – um, your attraction to dopamine takes a backseat to your attraction to caffeine, uh, but because that becomes an important part of your your day. Yeah, or or caffeine becomes the primary source of your dopamine. Right, every maybe. day. Yeah, maybe so. So he spent some time in the book talking about the sort of brain that uh, technology favors, or not not favors, but creates, produces. So certain forms of tech produce certain kinds of minds. And we saw this, I think, in Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. There's a, um, you know, in, in Amusing Ourselves to Death, we sort of looked at the, uh, what kind of a society or culture the television technology was producing. And it was an entertainment-dominated society where the sum of all good was, is it entertaining or is it not? But what kind of brain, what kind of mind does the internet produce? Does, you know, um, and, yeah. and by internet, I, you know, we, we can talk about, I mean, I'm using a very broad term when I say internet, but you know what I mean. What kind of mind, according to the book here, does internet produce? That's yeah. a great question, Ben. Oh, hey, yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ben. I really appreciate that feedback instantaneously. <laughs> well, I think, again, this is just a... Uh, very generalized summary uh, response to that, but um, I would say, as far as knowledge is concerned, the superficial one, um, you get fragments, bits and pieces of of multiple stories and headlines and articles, and like you were talking, the addiction comes in where you just you're inclined to just click on the next one and the next one and the next one. But if you were to go and try to share some of that with somebody about what you just read, all that you really come away with most of the time, if you didn't give any serious thought to what you're reading, is basically the headline, and you, you can't even elaborate on the story itself because you were just scanning so fast. And, you know, he makes the point that we think that we're gaining knowledge by doing this, but you're really not. Uh, he talks about training, one, uh, earmarked one quote that kind of stood out to me. He says, you can train until you're blue in the face and you never be as good as you, as if you just focused on one thing at a time. He was talking about multitasking. He says, what we're doing when we multitask is learning to be skillful at a superficial level. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, always we hear about that guy's a really good multitasker. You know, that was seen as a good thing, right? And, and I'm not saying it's all bad, but what he's talking about as far as media and the internet's concerned, I used to. Sometimes I have a habit of, you know, having a game on when I'm just writing and studying and stuff. But what I found is I used to think, boy, I can do both these things at one time, watch the game and do this. And, and I was doing it, but I found myself rereading the same line about 10 times before I actually moved <laughs> yeah. on to the next yeah. one. I was like, yeah. what was I just thinking about that? Because I got distracted 
but I thought I was still accomplishing my goal. But if I'm just in silence, it's amazing. I mean, the stuff he hit, I was like, it's absolutely true. Just the quiet reflection, the things that God can do in your heart and mind when you're just still, um, especially when you're in his word. It's amazing when you don't have the distractions of something like a screen in front of you Mm -hmm. and you're... And I'm trying to dominate the conversation here, but the other thing that I was sharing with Leslie this morning, she says, how is that book? And I said, well, it's really good. It's interesting. The study they did with people that were um, allowed to have a phone face down, turned off even, read a book, and other people that didn't even have the book or the phone in the room and read a book, they did way better than the person that didn't even have the phone on, but it was still a distraction to them. All right, spoiler alert. So... Stay tuned. I'm just going to drop drop a teaser here, okay? Our next episode is going to be on um, a tech fast. So if you're listening to this right now, many of us have undergone a tech fast, and we're going to report on our observations from that. So uh, come back in a couple weeks for that. Yeah. Well, and you've hit upon, I think, one of the things I would highlight about the internet brain, and it's it's not only superficial, it's distracted. And this sort of myth of multitasking that he, he sort of takes to task in the in the book, he talks about the idea that, when we multitask, every time our brain switches topics, you you lose something. Your brain has to recalibrate to this new idea, this new method of learning, this new concept. And so every time you switch, you're actually just losing some of that attention. It's like you're trying to move a, a, a tower of bricks over, and you're going to drop some bricks off at some point doing that. And so by doing that, you're actually reducing the amount of overall mental energy you can devote to your topics and you're not going to be able to grasp as much during right. that same amount of time. So, well, I think the other thing it, it is uh, that he talks about multitasking is that it inhibits your ability to make um, to distinguish between relative value and priorities. He, he, he mm-hmm. puts it this way. He says, multitasking makes people suckers for irrelevancy. Mm-hmm. And and it, what he means by that, in, in the context in which that was said, was um, that when you're multitasking, things are happening, and your attention is scattered. You, it diminishes your ability to properly set priorities and proper and rightly uh, value different things that are competing for your attention, and so you end up sort of prioritizing things that don't matter over and against things that were actually really important. Yeah, and I think I think sort of to, to piggyback on that is this idea that I've experienced this in my own life. If I've done any research, if I've been like looking for an answer to some question, whether that's during a Bible study thing or writing a paper or whatever it may be, if I'm using the internet to do that research, I find that I'm more easily satisfied um, because I, I will take what the internet gives me and say, that'll do, hmm. rather than go deeper and find the thing I'm actually looking for, the answer that I actually need. And so the internet sort of, I think, creates a more easily satisfied mind, a less inquisitive, a a, a far less likely to deep think mind. So I've got a quote I want to read from the book that kind of uh, captures this whole idea for us. This is um, from the chapter in, in his book called The Juggler's Brain. One thing is very clear. If, knowing what we know today about the brain's plasticity, you were to set out to invent a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you would probably end up designing something that looks and works a lot like the Internet. It's not just that we tend to use the net regularly, even obsessively. 
It's that the net delivers precisely the kind of sensory and cognitive stimuli, repetitive, intensive, interactive, addictive, that have been shown to result in strong and rapid alterations in brain circuits and functions. With the exception of alphabets and number systems, the net may well be the single most powerful mind-altering technology that has ever come into general use. At the very least, it's the most powerful that has come along since the book. Not his book, but the technology of <laughs> yeah. the book, right? So God has told us in his word that our minds are best used when applied in certain directions. There's, there's modes of thinking that a Christian should be able to develop. I think, for instance, contemplation, uh, I meditate on your word. That sort of deep thinking is an important part of what God calls Christians to. The Internet obviously isn't privileging that kind of thinking. So what do you think the net gains and losses of Internet use might be for the average Christian on that front? Yeah, I think the first thing you would lose is the ability to control what your attention goes to. The internet is designed for distraction. As, as was mentioned that, he has a chapter in the book called The Church of Google, which goes through sort of the way – Great chapter. It, yeah, yeesh. <laughs> great, great in – the great and terrible sense um, because it unravels some of the just and, – and he doesn't even make Google out to be a villain. He just says this is what the technology right. and the people who are best using the technology are going to do. Yeah. And he talks about the way that it's designed to distract because that's what makes the internet work. The, the clicks we use, the, the places our eyes go, the uh, links we follow all give an, more data – than if we stay in one place for a long time for them to make better websites and better advertisements and all these things. And so the internet is designed to distract. And so what it does is it erodes our ability to decide where we put our attention. And if there's one thing that is required of people who are, to, to borrow a phrase, a people of the book, a people who are designed to attend and to give and to love the Lord our God with all of our minds – the loss of the ability to decide where our mind and our attention go is like one of the first ways to remove even our ability to obey. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, he actually says um, the net seizes our attention only to scatter it. And that's an interesting observation. Um, it's a great quote. Yeah, I think we um, maybe ought to be clearly defining terms what when we say the net i think what we really mean a lot of times is specific kinds of services and applications consumable that media, leverage the net yeah, yeah. social networking uh media you know I, I i mean it's not the plumbing we're talking about just to be clear and maybe i'm being pedantic because i'm a technical guy yeah you, i think we're not that's really, exactly what's going yeah, on <laughs> I, we're not really talking about the plumbing we're talking about the services right and i do think you know, the chapter on Google was really uh, awesome, um, but I think it's even kind of dated because yeah, uh, it's worse now by a lot yeah. mm. uh, in terms of what's been learned about intermittent rewards and the, the application of very um, 
experienced cognitive psychologists who are on the payroll of all these uh, social media companies and designing these applications and features into phones that are designed to to control our attention. And so, so that, you've talked about this before. You've brought this up. You've, you've talked about how there's a certain kind of mind that the engineer has to have, that kind of prolonged, yeah. deep-thinking mind that develops the forms of technology that are actually robbing our minds of the ability to think deeply for a prolonged period of time. And there's an ethical question there, I think, that you've raised that no yeah. one's asking about the engineer who's doing this. Talk a little bit about that. I think... Um, to to build these kinds of capabilities from an engineering and soft, software development perspective, it requires uh, certain habits of mind that are the exact opposite of the habits of mind uh, cultivated as described in the book. So to do deep work, uh, to produce very complex semiconductors or software to run on those semiconductors requires sustained focus, deep reading, uh, the ability to concentrate for long periods of time, uninterrupted. Uh, all of these things are characteristic of the, of the skill sets and the habits of mind that it takes to build this kind of stuff. But what's surprising to me as someone who's been in and around Silicon Valley since the really the late <clears throat> 80s, early 90s, is uh, the extent to which um, uh, so much uh, technology development resources being devoted to manipulating human beings in ways that diminish their ability to do the kinds of things that the engineering community is capable of doing. It's hmm. and and I'm I'm quite sure you know that. Tons and tons of these people don't think of themselves as evil geniuses or something. They, they don't, they're not even considering the ethical implications in some cases of what they're doing. But there are some people who are, and they're, they're walking away from those uh, kinds of pursuits. Um, and and I, th I think a lot of it's tied up into advertising-based business models. I mean, that sort of corrupts in some fundamental ways the, um, the motivations of these companies, but at the end of the day, I think we should give some thought to the fact it should it should not go unnoticed that the the things that are being degraded by our use of technology are being developed by people who themselves uh, are not embracing mm -hmm. the the uh, fragmented thinking and attention disruption that they're promoting. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the comment that the Google CEO made was that he viewed his company as a moral force, you know, that we will shape the morals of society by what we're putting out there. And so um, when it got, and so some of the things that I was uh, picking up on was, you know, that things like the invention of uh, the internet and the content and the way they go about functioning. It makes people dependent. We we need you now. Um, we can't survive without you. Tell us what we should be thinking. And so he got into that part about AI. And um, he said, uh, still there are easy assumptions that we'd all be better off if our brains were supplemented or even replaced by artificial intelligence is as unsettling as it is revealing. 
It underscores the firmness and the certainty with which Google holds to its Taylorist belief that intelligence is the output of a mechanical process, a series of discrete steps that can be isolated, measured, and optimized. And then this quote is what jumped out at me. Human beings are ashamed to have been born instead of made. Almost like, I don't want to have to think for myself. You tell me what I need to think. And that's not the way God designed this. Yeah. You know. and, and I think it goes to this naivete you talk about among the technicians. I think it's true also of the people using the technologies. And, and to your point, and maybe to be clear, we're not just using things like social media and TikTok as a whipping boy here. We're talking about things as basic as the search engine, like the way that search engines change the way we research. Everything about the way the Internet is being delivered to us is reshaping our brains in some pretty crazy ways. And I think a lot of the the naivety we bring to that tool comes from this exact idea that we're viewing our brains like computers. That not only are we changing computers to fit man, we are trying to fit man to fit the computer. Yeah, there's – there's a – I think there's a certain kind of – scientism we've talked about before in this class and by scientism i mean just sort of that implicit trust that science is for our good and that scientists possess this omniscient grasp of um all things good for humanity i mean it's like it's classic idolatry when you place that kind of a hope on some force other than god you're you're idolizing it you're elevating it beyond its its um natural limits and, and I think that the same thing is happening with technology. I think we've got sort of an implicit trust mm. in the technocrats of the world that they're, re- they're the ones that are propelling human society toward that utopian end, whatever that is. And every form of technology that comes down the pike is good for us, and everyone should jump on it. And look, look what we have now. This is just like the book. It's not just like the book. There, every form of technology has its own ethic. It, ha- it has an accompanying uh, metaphor, to use Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman's phrase, the media is the metaphor. Um, and so, you know, he even gives the example of the calculator. The calculator and the Internet are two different forms of technology. And to say that, well, the Internet's just like the calculator, because in the same way that the calculator helped us do math faster, the Internet helps us retrieve data faster. It's not actually the case. The calculator helped freed up working um, load memory for the creation of long-term memory, whereas the Internet precludes the creation of long-term memory by, by its very essence. And so yeah. not every technology is made the same. And I think that I think we have to start waking up to the reality that we have to think critically about the technologies we consume. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, Google's desire to digitize every book on the face of the planet. You know, if he talked about, and maybe, I don't know if they've, Keith, are we anywhere close to that? <laughs> um, I mean, they've gone a long way. I, I, I actually, I mean, I'll, not to throw cold water in this discussion because I think we're spot on in, in pursuing this line of thinking. I think Google Books has been less impactful than he anticipated it being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like just an overstimulated card catalog. You know, I mean, it's kind of become yeah. that with the ability to just lift pages and look at them. It hasn't sort of been the kind of disruptive thing. Now, Google in total has been. 
the kind of disruptive thing he envisioned, yeah. the combination of services and phones and If anything, it, and there's whatnot. the ethical question of intellectual property that well, it Well, that's been but, a huge yeah. debate, obviously, um, yeah. and a big factor. But right. I, I think it they have consumed huge volumes of the world's printed literature and even i mean even invented machines that automatically turn pages and right you know explore whole new algorithms for recognizing characters and translating digital images to text and right well, my it's point, been a big deal yeah my point in bringing that up was that you know he talked about how much we retain maybe holding a book and reading versus something on online and i know it's not always true that you can't walk away from reading on screen and not remember anything but i just wonder if we did our own little experiment here at church so if people pull out their phones to re- for bible for their bibles or their ipads you know does that have any impact on their ability to retain what they're reading versus the man or woman that has a, a hard copy of god's word in their hand so yeah. there actually is an answer to that question van the answer is absolutely yes it would have an effect so yeah. the book brings up dozens of uh studies that we can sort of uh bat around here i wanted to discuss real briefly because this was a new concept to me because i went to bible college and know nothing about brain science but this idea of working memory this idea that there's a difference between what we can retain in a few seconds after we learn it and what we can retain years and years indefinitely after we learn it and the image he used to describe it for people like me was trying to fill a bathtub with a thimble, you know, a oh, tiny yeah. little cup yeah. in your hand, and that's your working memory. That's how much you can hold in your head at any one time, and you have to fill that bad boy up, that tiny little cup, like the communion cups at Lake Ridge, and then dump that into the bathtub. The process of filling that little cup and then dumping it into the bathtub, that's your working memory moving towards long-term memory. And if you don't do that effectively, if you don't give yourself enough time to fill that cup all the way up and then take the time to dump it in, you're going to short-circuit that process and you're not going to retain it. And so they did studies with people reading the same text on a screen with hyperlinks versus just reading it off a page, and the differences were dramatic. They even had uh, studies where people would walk. They would do a memory study walk either through a city, city yeah or it's mm-hmm. i've heard you talk about it before it's yeah, like, oh this it. is where he got it or mm-hmm. walk through a park mm-hmm. and the difference in what they retained was dramatic mm-hmm. because yeah. of the extra stimulus of the city and so the point being <laughs> when you add distractions while you're trying to learn you're reducing the amount you can remember long term here's the funny thing kyle about that illustration you mentioned because you might think oh it's just that the city is more distracting and more stimulating, and so it sort of short circuits that transfer of hmm. working memory to long-term memory. But then they did the same study, but instead of sending people through the park and through the city, they simply showed them pictures mm-hmm. yeah. of nature and parks uh, and versus cities, yeah. right? And the same phenomena showed up. There is something about nature that yeah. man is fitted for um, and to. And I think that's sort of boggling the scientific mind. Of course, um, evolutionary psychologists would say, well, we evolved in nature, and so our brains are still privileging the natural environment over the cityscape. Uh, Christians would say, well, we were created by God to work the garden, and so therefore we're right. built, built by him for it. You know, yeah. the, the gross stereotype of the farmer, or the country boy, country girl, they're, they're just dumb. They don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. I sit with them and listen. You yeah. know, I bet you they'll have a lot more to say about life and, and be on point than you will. Well, and like, you know? so they talk a lot, too, about just the amount of extra work it takes to read a screen with other things on it that you could click. So, like, 
even if you've got your Bible app open during a sermon, right? You've also got a button up at the top that says back, like go to another spot. Mm. And you've got an advertisement maybe at the bottom that's like for, you know, some drug you'll never use, right? And so even just the decision in your brain to see that ad and say, no, I don't want to click that is one more distraction, is one more thing that takes away from your ability to focus on what you're actually reading and reduces the amount of what you're reading that ends up going into long-term memory. Yeah. So, so I want to I want to revisit this Kyle's comments about working memory. Um, and <laughs> please tell me what I got wrong. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, it's spot on. I think it's even. It's a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 but it's closely associated with the whole idea of attention hmm. because he talks at length about. How yeah. because you have because working memory is such a finite resource, when you're in a distracted context, it crowds out. Hmm. It 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 uses working memory on extraneous things yeah. and and slows down and, and precludes in some cases your ability to to actually learn. Um here's the interesting thing. So the reality is your attention is a superpower, as as people like to say. And and controlling your attention uh, is a powerful thing. And what we're really engaged in in our engagement with the these network services and our phones and all these other things is we're engaged in a tug of war over where our attention is going to be devoted. Here's the interesting thing: we're we're about to go through as big a revolution in a bi- as big a cognitive re- revolution and economic revolution as the internet was with some breakthroughs that have happened over the last four or five years in artificial intelligence. Um, it's going to be very economically disruptive. Um, and, you know, the whole creative destruction thing that people talk about in capitalism is really about to happen, and all kinds of people are going to lose their jobs and have to figure out something else to do. Um, but having said that, it's interesting. It's all rooted. This big, the big breakthrough came through around 2016, 2017, in a paper, interestingly, written by a bunch of engineers at Google. And the paper is entitled, unusually, Attention is All You Need. And what they discovered with artificial intelligence, and if you go out and play around with the chat GPT model, which is kind of the popular mm-hmm. representation of this, what they discovered is that to get really powerful, to derive really powerful insights, it's important to control and focus attention. And in their case, they're talking about the attention that's paid by the machine learning model to specific things. Not human attention. Not human attention. But this is this is my point. What they've <sighs> learned in doing really powerful AI is that focusing the attention of the model is the key to significant achievement. So what we've done here in the 21st century is a proportional um, development and develop. Uh, um, uh, devolution devolution of mind and attention yeah. we have spent all of our greatest effort developing an artificial mind yes. and underdeveloping the human actual a- a- mind a- a- while intentionally uh scattering the attention of human beings let me read this this is this is exactly square in the crosshairs of uh, a quote that i had pulled up here in the book the changes in our brains happen automatically outside the narrow compass of our consciousness but that doesn't absolve us from responsibility for the choices we make. One thing that sets us apart from other animals is the command we have been granted over our attention. Learning how to think 
really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think, said the novelist David Foster Wallace in a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. To give up that control is to be left with the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. A mentally troubled man, he would hang himself two and a half years after the speech. Wallace knew with special urgency the stakes involved in how we choose or fail to choose to focus our mind. We cede control over our attention at our own peril. Everything that neuroscientists have discovered about the cellular and molecular workings of the human brain underscores that point. So this issue of our attention is critical to, I think, what it means even to be intelligent human beings, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian. But the stakes are even higher, I believe, for the eternity of mankind when it comes to the Christian and his or her ability to choose rightly how we invest or literally pay, yeah. right? Like the word pay, invest our attention. Yeah. It's critical. Yeah, there's this, there's this idea that we've gotten, and it goes back to this idea that we conceive of ourselves as similar to computers, that our brains are really just complex computers. If we built a m- complex enough computer, we could theoretically replicate the brain. And one of the things that was really crazy, he got to this idea of, memory and he talks about what he means by a rich mind is a mind full of these deep connections between our attention that we have now and attention we paid long in our past yeah. and he one of the points he makes is what some scientists are postulating and what i think is probably correct is that our what makes us intelligent what makes us truly wise is not that we have a lot of connections between now and later. It's the connection itself. It's not the destination. There's not some spot in our brain that goes, oh, because you've got 50 spots in your brain with memories in them, you're intelligent. No, it is the connections itself we build. It's the fact that we can connect right now to all the things we've learned in rich, deep, and Uh, varied ways that's the difference and a computer is just not going to do that the same by by substituting external memory banks for inner memories that tech threatens to make us shallower thinkers preventing us from achieving the intellectual depth that leads to wisdom and true happiness it's another great quote from the book i think it hits on what you're talking about kyle so for for what it's worth i i think everything he said in here is spot on about the way people are thinking of the human mind as mechanistic and the brain as mechanistic in in biological ways um but the very the very smartest ai researchers are backing away from this notion hmm. that the human brain um that that what's happening in ai is uh the same thing that's happening in the human brain um i just recently listened to a uh, a podcast uh, where the podcaster was interviewing a guy named Andre Karpathy. Andre is a, he's one of the leading lights in thinkers in the field of AI. He was director of AI at Tesla and worked for Elon there. He's uh, one of the original guys at OpenAI. He's, he's been everywhere and done everything, lectured at Stanford and 
you know, he's just a really bright guy. He's actually pretty young. He's, I think he's in his late 30s, maybe. Um, but he was asked about this whole, you know, are we modeling the human brain? And he was like, no, I don't, I don't say that anymore. And he's, he's really, you know, the people who know this stuff well are, are kind of backing away from thinking that what we're doing with AI is really like the human mind. So for what it's worth. Mm. So even there with all of the hubris that they have in trying to control all of our attention and everything, even they sort of come to grips with the fact that we're not even scratching the surface of what this mind, this brain that God's given us yeah. in its complexity, we're not even approaching. We're not even that. approaching it. And not only that, just to give you, I mean, if you want to talk about physics for a second, not, not only that, but yeah, I want to talk um, about physics. the human mind can do what it does with the equivalent of about 13 or 14 watts of energy. Um, it's 100 megawatts to train uh, ChatGPT in a data center, which can is equivalent of powering, I think, something like 80,000 homes, like a small city, um, to, to learn. So human minds thing. are greener. Right. Human oh, minds are greener. Much, uh, much smaller carbon so, footprint, for sure. So if we want a more sustainable future, go green, choose yeah. the human mind. Choose the human mind <laughs> over artificial intelligence. I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's turn the, the tables. No. I like that. <laughs> that oh, how the turntables. Yeah. <laughs> so Keith, as a guy you were just citing, does he see, I mean, if he's backing away from making that kind of comment, does he or you see a benefit in AI? For any use, or do you think oh, yeah. it's just a danger? Yeah. Or, you know, no, no. I think that it has very um, humane and uses that contribute to human flourishing. For example, I think we will eventually see uh, AI models that do a better job of evaluating medical imagery than human beings can do, mm. and mm. will detect mm -hmm. earlier problematic things than a than a human, say, a radiologist or a pathologist might be able to. To detect, so I think there's going to be all kinds of interesting uh, uses that are that are that contribute to human flourishing. So, like sure. you said in the book, I think there's a balance then to be struck by us, the user, on how much we give ourselves to uh, letting the the net um, be our go-to instead of doing the hard, deep thinking ourselves and reading and studying. But there are some uses some beneficial uses to be had there just don't cross that line of where it's shaping you instead of you sort of shaping it or yeah, controlling I, I it. Yeah, I would say yeah. the same thing needs to be – the same wisdom that Christians have applied to th something like wine yeah. ought to be applied to the internet. Sure. Hmm. Both of those uh, do something to your mind um, that you can't control. When hmm. you use it, right. it's doing that to your mind. Uh, too much use – and it does something really bad to your mind. And there's a slippery slope. At one point, you might start doing too much because it has taken control of your mind. And right. I think that's the trick in our internet usage. Yes, it's good. Yeah. God says he gave us wine to make our hearts glad. But too much of it is a bad thing. And the same thing, I yeah. think, goes for the, for the yeah. internet. Well, and the beauty of neuroplasticity that we talked about at the beginning was it can work in every direction. So we can begin to reclaim our minds by the attention we give to different forms of mediums. So uh, even just like reading this book was a, was a fascinating uh, experiment for me because I would find myself sitting at my chair reading this book 
And you know what my fingers were doing? My, on my right hand, where, where I, uh, my, my first two fingers were tapping constantly on my table or on my leg. Because that's, if I was sitting shame there. Shame on you, Kyle. I know, shame on me. <laughs> because that's what I would have been doing if I was consuming text on a screen. I would have been clicking with those fingers. Hmm. And so it was interesting. Even over the course of reading this book, I found my ability to just sit and be content to read a page increased Hmm. even just in the short you know couple of weeks of just sort of plodding through the book and so we can change what's going on in our minds we just have to be willing to pay attention Hmm. and so what was amazing to me um and it wasn't just with this book but like i was saying earlier you can scan 20 articles within just a, a few minutes and not be able to say much about it to anybody about anything but you read a book that's got you know maybe the thickness of this one, and, and it's pretty dense, and some of this terminology, you kind of got to sit there and say, wow. But I could walk away and not even talk about it for a day, but just the other day, you and I, you asked me how far I was in reading The Shallows, and instantly I'm recalling multiple things that he said in the book mm-hmm. with clarity. <clears throat> yeah. And so it's amazing to me yeah. how our minds are able to latch on to holding this and reading this. Yeah, our reading versus, is a yeah. different mental, uh, intellectual exercise. Yeah. 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 So anyway. Yeah, it creates a different kind of brain. You know, he uses this image of Hal, the robot, in um, in the early parts of the book, and he goes back to Hal at the end when he talks about memory. You're saying Hal, not Hal. Hal. Yeah, Hal. <laughs> Let me allow my diction to be clearer. Yeah. Hal, the robot. From uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And he talks about this moment towards the end of the movie where he's being dismantled. His connections to his memories are being ripped out of his circuitry boards and he's losing his mind. And the thing he says is, I can feel it. I can feel it. I'm afraid. What's interesting to me is so many of us have allowed the internet to slowly start ripping those connections to our memories out of our brain one connection at a time. And we don't even have the wisdom to be afraid of it. We don't even have the wherewithal to go, this might be a bad thing for me. We just take it. And it's like, uh, I got freaked out by the book, honestly. I was sitting there with Hal going, I think I'm a bit afraid (laughs) of what I've been doing. Well, so we're going to transition, I think, at this point. Um, And we've got another conversation to record. And so I want us to sort of... It may feel like we're, we're stopping short here. I don't want us to come to too many conclusions on our use of technology because there's a whole conversation we want to have about some of that here in a little bit that'll, that'll come out. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, it'll come out in a couple weeks here, so stay tuned. But I think it's enough to say for now that we can't mindlessly use any tool, any form of tech without considering what impact it's having on us to think critically about that and ask ourselves, is this form of technology contributing to human flourishing? And by that I mean, is it contributing to the ends for which God designed me or us as not just Christians specifically, but humans generally? Is it producing the kind of mind, the kind of person, the kind of life that God intends for us to live? And so with that in mind, we invite you back for our next Man vs. Machine episode coming up here in just a little while.